Welcome to The Radical Bureaucrat, a podcast for people who want to change institutions from the inside. I'm Sam Rosaldo, and I believe that good government matters, like, a lot. Oh, me too. I'm Abram Guerra, and I believe that complicated problems never have simple solutions. Oh, me too. If you work in a bureaucracy like we do, or if you care about bureaucracies, then we think you'll get a lot out of our podcast, The Radical Bureaucrat. On today's episode of The Radical Bureaucrat, we'll be talking about an article about Eva Moskowitz. So we did do a little bit of an introduction, but this is actually, as you'll hear, the very first thing that Sam and I recorded together. Uh, we had never like pulled the microphones out and put the headphones on before this. Um, and so we might have just been like really excited and eager, and then we forgot that like not everybody in America knows like who's Eva <laughs> Moskowitz, who's that? Yeah. So this article came out in The Atlantic in December of 2017, and that's when we taped the episode. And Moskowitz is the former chair of the New York City Council Education Committee. I think there was also a campaign that she wanted to be speaker, um, which is the most powerful position in, in city council. And there's two committees in city council that are the most powerful committees, and that's the finance committee and the education committee. And so she was chair of the education committee, uh, which many for many people is sort of positioning for higher office, for chair of city, uh, speaker rather of city council in New York City or for mayor. Yeah, and she made a name for herself um, during city council hearings on just asking really tough questions about how schools were resourced. And, and so then she founded Success Academy Charter Schools in Harlem in 2006, starting with a single school. At the time, Mike Bloomberg was mayor, Harlem was quickly becoming ground zero of the charter school movement. And she was upfront from the start to say, like, we're starting with one school, but we're trying to get very large very quickly. And they have. And it's most, is it only here in New York now, so? Or they got uh, I, I don't really know. Um, but I know that there are quite a few of it's them in New big, York City. It's big. And it's big in New York in particular. You'll hear more about the, the charter network and what it connotes to different people as we get into the episode. All right, enjoy. If you like what you're hearing on our podcast, leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a world of difference. Before we get started, I just wanted to note that we are sort of experimenting with this whole podcast thing. We're very excited about the idea of talking to an audience through this medium, but we're also very much learning. And so what we figured we'd do is sort of record a few episodes and then figure out what are the larger important themes that we wanted to touch on around living the life of a radical bureaucrat. Yeah. So this is our very first time doing this. It may not be the first one we ever release, but uh, it's the first time I've ever heard my voice broadcast back to my ears and these headphones. It's, it's, it's a new thing. So on this episode, we've chosen an article to talk about together. It's called The Charter School Crusader by Chalkbeats co-founder, CEO, and editor-in-chief Elizabeth Green in the January-February 2018 issue of The Atlantic. The subtitle for the article is, The Combative Eva Moskowitz Has Created the Nation's Most Impressive School System and Made Lots of Enemies in the Process. So why, why'd we choose this article? I don't know. Didn't you choose this article? <laughs> yeah, well, th thanks for asking me. Um, I I suggested it because it was kind of the article of the week a couple weeks ago. There were a lot of responses. And one thing about the article that I don't think has actually gotten that much play, 
but is that um, Green is kind of framing Moskowitz as a new kind of government figure, a right. new kind of bureaucrat. And, you know, she's not naturally the first person I think of as uh, a radical, um, but Green seems to think that she is. And so it's a different framing of, of this concept of radical bureaucrat. Yeah, I think that's interesting. And yeah, it was a very kind of like fashionable uh, article for a hot minute. And, you know, any story with Eva Moskowitz is going to garner some attention. Um, But yeah, I think the core tension, which I think we'll talk about in a little bit, um, is this idea of basically replacing a government, replacing a bureaucracy with something better. And the author, Elizabeth Green, seems to point to bureaucracy as like the key problem. And 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 in that sense, Eva Moskowitz is sort of a solution to a problem. Um, so that's a kind of interesting and right. provocative place to start. I will I will admit this feels a little nerve wracking that like we're taking on this hyper controversial thing. And like I instantly, as I was reading through this article, thought about the different people at work who are going to ask me why I did this and like why. I, uh, I have to broadcast my opinions about this particular person or, or organization. Yeah, I don't think anyone at work's going to listen to this. You think so? <laughs> not my work. Maybe if See, we're lucky. If we're lucky. And everything I do, I dream big. So <laughs> I'm imagining great. being famous because of this and getting fired. <laughs> yeah. So um, I'll, I'll sort of kick us off here. So it was interesting to me, both Elizabeth Green and, in a broader sense, Eva Moskowitz are sort of these figures that emerge at this particular time in history, right? So uh, Elizabeth Green starts the article in 2008 with all of this excitement around reimagining New York City school system and the and the Bloomberg era reforms are just about to kick off. And I just wanted to to sort of contextualize it and say like, well, what were you doing? And were you, uh, you were at the DOE, right, during mm-hmm. this time. And so like, what, what was that like? It's funny, I definitely wasn't coming to the DOE the same way Green was, like looking for where the change was happening. But um, in 2008, I was becoming a bureaucrat for the second time in the DOE. So what uh, I started teaching in California, I taught second grade, then I moved to DC and I worked in the city government for a couple of years. And then I moved to New York in 2004 to attend Bank Street College and um, kind of relearn how to be a teacher. And I taught in the South Bronx for three years from 2005 to 2008. So summer of 2008, I left my job and started applying for other jobs. And I ended up having only like a month that I was unemployed before I got hired to come into District 79, the Alternative Schools District in New York. Um, so I started in October of 2008. Actually got in right as the economy crashed and so just made it in before the hiring deadlines that got imposed. You know, what was happening was that the DOE had had the same structure for about 100 years mm. and then in 2002, a year after taking office, Bloomberg got the state legislature to, you know, approve the dissolution of the, the Board of Education in New York City. You know, we had mayoral control. They had a regional structure that at one point and that, and that was changed. And, and then, you know, all around 2008, it was going to networks. Um, and there were other structures that were happening. I can't even remember them yeah. all. But the, the, there was lots of changing of the structure of the DOE at that time. And where I worked in 79, we were a little bit divorced from it because we kind of operated as our own entity anyway. Um, so I wasn't thinking about it as much. Yeah, Moskowitz has one charter school mm-hmm. in 2008 when I started in the DOE. So it's, it's not really, I mean, she was getting press from the start, but no, nothing like it is now. Um, it was only a few years later, actually, that uh, 
the emails between her and Klein where she's asking client, hey, you got to get me space, start to come out. Mm. So, Yeah, that's interesting. 2008 was, uh, feels like a era, entire epoch before I sort of got started in this space. I actually did do some work in the mid 2000s with, uh, in Los Angeles with the LAUSD um, around their uh, implementation of sort of no child left behind money for after school stuff. Um, but you know, I, I wasn't, I wasn't really thinking about the sort of, uh, public sector or the sort of social sector. I was, I was running a consulting business running around and, um, and I actually, uh, right around the time of this article was in this catastrophic motorcycle accident mm. that sort of changed the whole course of my life, let alone my career. Wow, I didn't know um, and, and was sort of the what precipitated moving east and going to graduate school and, you know, after graduate school sort of getting involved in um, the sort of civic tech or, or the social tech space. So yeah, I actually did, a lot of what I know about the Bloomberg era is out of the, there's this Harvard Grad School of Education press book uh, called Education Reform in New York City, um, which kind of outlines in an academic way all of those sort of confusing structures that you were alluding to. And I, I actually have a copy of it at work that whenever somebody new comes in, the first thing I tell them is that they should read this book because it's almost impossible to understand where we are now as, as an organization, as a school system, without understanding the things that changed and weren't put in place. So yeah, it's a really interesting yeah. moment in history that sort of this story sort of emerges out of. So all that's by way of introduction. You know, the author's talking about how she came to New York City and, and the context of, of this time in 2008. And then in, I think, the very first paragraph, she has the sentence. She Or, you know, right at the top of the article, she says, Bloomberg and Klein played their part, but the real revolutionary was another person I met early on in my reporting, a five foot two inch redhead from Harlem named Eva Moskowitz. <laughs> this really sticks out because, first of all, I mean, Eva Moskowitz is a revolutionary. Yeah. Right? Like that that's a pretty interesting label for Eva Moskowitz. And um this made me think of the first podcast you've recorded, Abram. And I know you guys on the, the podcast talked a lot about what does it mean to be a revolutionary? Are you a revolutionary? So you've given some thought to this term and what the term means. And I really wanted to know uh, what you thought in terms of is Eva Moskowitz a revolutionary in your framing? And how do you define that? So I was recently on a friend's podcast. Uh, so the podcast is uh, Creed, which is spelled C-R-E-A-D. That stands for Culturally Responsive Educators of the African Diaspora, which is this great uh, group that does uh, technical training around uh, race and disproportionality within education. A lot of teacher training work, a lot of culturally responsive uh, education work, a lot of anti-bias, anti-racism work. Um, and they have a blog and podcast that I occasionally will contribute to because I love them and, and they let me talk about the things that I care about. And yeah, I was on this podcast and, and we were talking about Angela Davis, who said that she was trying to be a revolutionary. And we all thought that, well, if she's right. trying, right. then we've got no hope. We're, <laughs> right. we're, we're something less than trying to be a revolutionary. Uh, I mean, this sets the article up in such a funny way for me. Like, I feel like either you hear the like... Rebel Alliance, da -da, da -da, da -da. <laughs> or you hear Darth Vader's theme, da, 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 da. right? So depending on your perspective of who Eva Moskowitz is, you're hearing like one or another message. Uh -huh. So like, what does the revolution mean if this is our revolutionary? Right. So 
fundamentally, I, my sort of answer to this question is that being a revolutionary or being a radical, to use our term, is about wanting to change the structure, wanting to change the system. Um, yeah. It's about saying that the things that we have that we're unhappy with are structural, you know, and it's and it's not incremental change is good, but it's not really enough. You won't really get the different world that you want until you change the underlying structure. And that's what being a revolutionary is about. It's about saying, you know, until we have freedom from the king of England, we won't be able to self-determine as a nation and therefore we're going to declare independence, right? That's what a revolution is. It's about the fundamental underlying system or structure. And I think one of the points of doing this podcast is about figuring out how to motivate and live radical change and wanting to change system and structures without sort of damaging or undermining the parts of the system that are sort of necessary or important or providing value, you know, maybe that's a flawed approach to being a revolutionary. I certainly have friends who think that um, it's it's a waste of time and you should spend your time instead, you know, organizing communities uh, and sort of being about a, a more radical movement. Yeah, the, the term here used is revolutionary. The term we've been using is radical, but the the term that's normally ascribed to Eva Moskowitz is reformer, right? She's in the reform camp. And that's been a term also, in fact, in 2008 was when the folks who are now accepted as the reformers started to embrace that term. I clearly right. remember mm -hmm. that moment when people were kind of like, wait, what? Like, I thought Debbie Meyer was a reformer. Like, <laughs> um, And so... She's gone from reformer to revolutionary, and and I think that it does kind of beg yeah, the question: why why didn't Green use the term reformer? Is is it become tired? Like, or is she trying to just emphasize a little bit more? And even that term, it's if it's just trying to change the structure, um, you know, they this is going to be interesting. I think this is something we're going to want to explore more. Like, there's a, a moral and a values judgment here about who gets to embrace that term. Not just it's more than just the structure, but it's a it's about your beliefs. It's also about how you go about it, mm -hmm. right? Like, it's yeah. like, can you be a revolutionary as a top down revolutionary, or is part of being a revolutionary like organizing and building a movement from the grassroots and 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 you know, how do you find the balance there? Yeah, I mean, certainly, I think this is called Godwin's Law, where, like, the average amount of time it takes to invoke Hitler in a conversation, right? Like, certainly Hitler was a kind of revolutionary, right? right? Like, he had some really radical ideas yeah. about how Europe should work, and he, from a very top-down kind of way, rolled out that change program, and it was very radical, and it was very violent, and it was very troubling. In many ways, people right now who are trying to change our democracy view themselves as revolutionaries. Um, if you look at the sort of alt-right militant groups, they very much attach themselves to the American Revolution and the idea of the militia. Um, and so, yeah, that's really different in terms of a revolution than what I think about when I say the word. I think about a revolution that involves activating the people right. in order to demand change, in order to yeah. form a government by the people and not a government that is sort of this top-down elite dictated thing. I don't know. I guess it's I guess 
radical has both meanings, right? Like it means both radically good and radically bad. It could mean radically better or radically worse for different people. You know, if we had a society where we redistributed wealth, that would be radically good for some people and radically bad for other people. Um, And therein lies the need for democracy, the need for people to be engaged and involved, Mm -hmm. because there is no solution that will make someone happy without making someone else unhappy. So the the real thing for me wasn't so much this question of whether or not she's a revolutionary. I'm fine with her being called a revolutionary. I do think it's a really interesting point that, like, the discourse has shifted from reformer to revolutionary. But But the more important question to me, maybe, is this question of whether or not Eva Moskowitz is a suitable replacement for a bureaucrat. Whether or not Eva Moskowitz and and the organization she's built um, is a suitable replacement for a bureaucracy. There's a great moment in the article where uh, Moskowitz declares that she's not going to run for mayor because it's actually less effective at her goals. Um, and the and the article says Moskowitz has realized that this is a quote that she can do more to change public schools as a private citizen than as mayor by operating outside of democracy rather than within it. I agree with her, and that unsettles me. That's Elizabeth Green yeah. who feels unsettled. This is sort of the core of the article. Uh, in according to the article that Elizabeth Green put on Chalkbeat, which is this issue of whether democracy is a preferable method to uh, this sort of operating as a private citizen outside the system. Um, so what do you think? Do you think this is true? Is it is it possible to do more as a private citizen than as a political leader or as somebody working within the system? I actually think that's might not be the right question because I think this is an example of wanting it both ways. People make the mistake all the time of saying public schools and charter schools. Mm-hmm. And the first thing someone will say is, charter schools are public schools. So why is Moskowitz a private citizen then? Like she runs a large publicly funded bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. So yes, she has more independence. Like That's part of the definition of being a charter school operator. She's not really a private citizen. I I mean, I guess the question I have is, is she really operating as a private citizen? And if she really was operating as a private citizen, she would have opened up a bunch of private schools. I don't I don't think that if you are truly operating as a private citizen, meaning you are privately funding whatever initiative it is that you're undertaking, that you can have as much of an impact from outside of the bu- democracy because she as much as she's getting money from very wealthy donors, um, she's getting a lot of money from taxpayers for this. Yeah. It's somewhere around ten thousand dollars a student. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a interesting sort of provocative point. If the organization that you're leading or the revolution that you're trying to accomplish is one that is sort of complicated in taxpayer dollars or complicated in the provision of public goods, does that mean that you're not necessarily entitled to be a private citizen? and do whatever you want to. Does that, do you have some sort of burden as a sort of bureaucrat with or without wanting to be a bureaucrat? Certainly when I think organizations get to a certain scale, it's inevitable that they become sort of bureaucratic. You can't scale, uh, I don't care how many assistants she has, I think she has four, according to the article, right? Like, 
however many assistants she has, she's never going to be able to do everything herself. You've got to scale. You've got to delegate things to people. And that turns you into a, a bureaucracy, right? But going back to the, the original question, like, to the extent that being a private citizen is a real option, assuming that Eva Moskowitz doesn't have any formal oversight into her decision making, and she can do mostly whatever she wants to as if she were a private citizen, right. um, is that a more effective route than the sort of available options for doing something like reforming the education space or revolutionizing it? I think I'm going to kick that question back to you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, in addition to being perhaps disingenuous, which is maybe what you're saying about having it both ways, I think it's problematic. I think there needs to be some kind of responsibility to the public good that a sort of private or, or for lack of a better word, market-oriented sort of system can provide. Market-oriented system can only provide the sort of maximization of benefits to a few people. It's not really designed to provide good for everyone, at least not as we've seen it over the last seven or eight centuries. I think it's problematic for a private citizen, quote-unquote, to have this much control over taxpayer dollars without the sort of oversight and accountability and responsibility that comes with the perhaps less efficient thing that is democracy. I think that's right. I think there's a another question that's tied up in this, which is also about just a style of leadership. Taking advantage of the independence that she has in order to make massive structural changes without going through a process of collecting public input, mm. you know, there's an assumption built into it that she knows what is best. At the same time, I'm not always sure that that type of leadership isn't sometimes necessary. I think there are some people who are suited to that type of leadership, and I think it can be exceedingly dangerous. Hmm. But I also wonder if sometimes it can be used to produce a greater good in certain moments. So it's not, again, I'm not, not quite answering the same question right. again, but but okay. I, I think that it's a, a, a related piece of it, because if you are going to operate as a private citizen, you're operating with that kind of independence. I almost find comfort in the dependence, because I find comfort in the process of democracy. And I think that the changes that are made through the process of democracy are more lasting because of the input and the checks that happen through process. Yeah, and I think that's sort of the larger question if you if you zoom out a little bit. Like, okay, so if you want to be radical, you want to be disruptive or destructive um, of these systems and structures, um, and you want to do that as like an outsider, and not from this sort of inside out or like democratic uh, uh, taking account for the needs and comments and uh, requirements of all of the different people that are stakeholders or involved. But like you basically think that you really are the only one with an answer. Is that justified by the ends? And I guess that might be like an impossible question to answer because it sort of depends. It depends on what the change is. Like, could we dictate something like uh, justice, right? It would would dictating justice through a sort of authoritative, non-democratic means be worth it? Could we dictate the the redistribution of wealth to eliminate poverty? I think history has shown us that when we attempt to do that, it doesn't go very well, right? What do you think? No, I agree. I think that I think that often we judge these types of initiatives in the moment when we don't have the perspective. And we don't know what the unintended consequences are. 
yeah, the the lesson that I glean from history is that the unintended consequences are so numerous. <laughs> yeah, you know, especially when you're not really listening to what people. Uh, who are most impacted by your reforms are experiencing. It's a real danger. Yeah, so the article sort of nod to this idea of like the ends justifying the means. And it quotes this other David Osborne book. I'll, I'll just read the quote. Uh, it says, An another new book, Reinventing America's Schools by David Osborne of the Progressive Policy Institute, describes the spread of charter schools as the shedding of an antiquated bureaucratic skin. He uses a nautical metaphor, those are always fun, to illustrate the distinctive way that charter schools work. At traditional public schools, the various layers of government are responsible for both steering and rowing. They steer by supplying funding and deciding what schools should broadly aim for, what kids should learn and by when. The government also rows, hiring the bureaucrats and superintendents and teachers charged with meeting those goals. So I don't want to I don't want to read through all of this, but the, basically she comes down to to the punchline. Critics of charter schools, a large and vocal group call this privatization, a word Moskowitz considers an inaccurate smear. True believers like Osborne, whose book and project at the Progressive Policy Institute are both sponsored by some of the same philanthropists promoting the success model, call it a quote 21st century system. So basically, the idea here is that the future system is one where we need these entrepreneurial leaders like Moskowitz, and that calling it privatization is counterproductive, and that what we really need is to decouple government responsibility for setting goals and, and sort of outcome measures from government management of getting to those outcome measures. What do you think? Is, is it reasonable? to suggest that Success Academy should operate in a more de democratic way? Or is it foolish because democracy is actually really inefficient at managing for success? So I've read this quote a few times, and maybe it's because I didn't row crew in college, but <laughs> I'm, I'm struggling with the metaphor. I, I just want to double back to it for a second. So the distinction between rowing and steering in this quote is the thing that I get hung up on, and I'm just not sure yet that the distinction is is as clear as he lays it out mm -hmm. so let's just review for a second what what is rowing and what is steering yeah so so what he's saying is that governments do both the deciding where we should go setting policy and what kids should learn for instance mm -hmm. but it also does the the how we get there it manages and implements those things right and so in the quote the government responsibility ends at steering for the charter school model. So that's providing funding, deciding measures of success, holding schools accountable. And then the rowing is choosing whom to hire and fire, what to pay them, what else to spend money on, how to design curricula. So I, yeah. I just don't think that the line is that clear because... Uh -huh. There's a lot of policy making involved right. in deciding whom to hire. Like, yeah, the boundary has been drawn has been drawn in this metaphor in a really convenient way. Yeah. So we want the government to collect money from the taxpayers and cut us a check, but we don't <laughs> want the government to be involved in telling us how we should spend the money. Right. We just want them to give us the money. Right. And it's like we want the government to set policy, 
But, we but don't which want policy do they want them to set? Yeah. Like, I, I don't know which policy he wants the government to set. Like, And right, doesn't isn't success famous for fighting any attempt by government to set right. policy? So didn't we, during the universal pre-K launch, have this whole story over a yep. year that, like, success refused to implement the standards for what a pre-K kid right. should learn? So I don't know that David Osborne has it quite right, um, although it's in, I don't know, I guess it's a picturesque yeah. kind of metaphor if you're looking over the Charles River from a bridge from Harvard. <laughs> right. But it's like, I feel like when the metaphor gets fully played out, the steering that happens is going to be less and less and the rowing is going to be more and more. It's not, the balance isn't going to be there. At the end of the day, the steering is just pay us, show yeah. me the money. Is that basically like the, the classic issue in uh, what what has been derisively called regulation, but right. what could perhaps more accurately be thought of as consumer protection, right. Right? right? So like the best thing we should do is let the banks decide <laughs> how they should row, right. not overburden them with right. direction. The best thing we should do is let the companies that raise cattle and chicken decide how they should yep. keep that safe not get involved and, and regulate them to death. So where you draw the line between rowing and steering is uh, kind of the whole game it's there. kind of the whole game, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So in addition to where you draw that line, there's this other issue of what your like real goal is, right? Right. One of the big underlying premises of the article is that the charter school network model is the most successful model that Green has seen in her many, many one decade of, right. uh, she seems to she seems to want to convince us that she doesn't like it. She doesn't like that it's the most successful model. Yeah, but it is the most successful model. But it also, I, I, I'm making a tongue in cheek comment about that she hasn't actually been doing this for that long, and she says this is the most successful model that she's seen, and and her her starting point is 2008. Right, you know, and presumably a few years before that, but not much longer. There's not a very long view of sure. this. One of the assumptions that I want to critique is the assumption that the network model is the most successful model that there is. What she says is that it would be the best of all worlds if the most efficient way to run great schools was also the most equitable, accountable, and parent-friendly. But I worry that that's hard to pull off. And so the second assumption that's here is that efficiency is more important than equitable, accountable, and parent-friendly. Because the way she writes that quote, right, she really gives more weight and value yeah, to efficiency. It's like, it's like efficiency is the, like, non-starter. It has to be the most efficient way. And also, if we have time, we'll make it, like, parent-friendly and equitable. But efficiency, efficiency is what really matters. That's right. That it really matters. Like. And, it, you know, I heard another public leader speak recently, and she was speaking very self-reflectively about the balance between efficiency and public input and trying to find that middle ground. And Green doesn't seem to value the balance. Uh, she's going straight for the efficiency here. Yeah, and I think that I think that these, these are sort of like uh, abstractions, but like there's a difference between efficiency and like how efficiently we get to a goal and effectiveness, which is how good the goal that we've set is. Right. And so if our goal is to maximize scores on standardized tests and we're not going to question whether or not that's the right goal. 
but we're going to uh, use our sort of school system, the money that we put into schools. We're going to focus all of that on efficiency toward accomplishing that goal of the highest possible test scores. But then we miss the larger discussion about whether or not that's the right goal, right? And I think that the the sort of Success Academy brand is is sort of burdened down with all of these anecdotal stories that that seem horrific you know mm -hmm. uh, small children being like shouted at in the classroom on video and like having you know, their list, torn lists up. of children yeah. being assembled that gotta go that's right having yeah. had children having their book torn up right because it's you know their work is so terrible and the teacher is so angry at them these may be very efficient methods. Right. These might be very efficient methods. Right. But that doesn't mean that this is what we should be doing. In the same way that we, it may be very efficient to raise chickens in a one foot by one foot cube. <laughs> right. That may not be the best way to raise them, though. You right. may be. But if your measure the is thing. the fastest way to get the chickens to the table. Right. Right. The, and and we could probably do ten more podcasts, especially you, on um, the importance of how you choose your measures. And, and and I've written some about that in the past. I'll share it with you. But anyway, that's a side note. Here's some counter arguments to what we're saying, though. That okay. I've heard great. Before, Let's right? do that. The 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 one is we don't have time. We've got kids who are behind. They're only going to be in third grade once. Right. That's the first counter argument. So that's a hard one to to back off the efficiency model with. The second counter argument is these are the best measures that we have. Like I, w I will take an imperfect measure over no measure at all, because for too long we have not held ourselves accountable and not really measured the outcomes. We've only thought about, you know, what teachers are doing and not what students are learning. Mm -hmm. So. I think those are two of the places where you would get pushback on on what we're saying. Do you want to respond to those? I mean, I I don't know. I've done quite a bit of thinking and writing about how you measure, and and more than how you measure these things, that that may or may not be true. You may or may not never have another third grade, right? Sure, but I don't think that that obviates the need to sort of rush on what the goal is. I think that. It's sort of like telling yourself that you don't really have time to cook dinner, so you're just going to stop at the McDonald's and pick up the cheeseburger. But you know what? If you don't have the time to sort of take a step back and figure out why you don't have time to cook dinner, you know, you're going to end up dead a lot sooner. And, and I don't think that that's what you want. I think what you want mm -hmm. is to end up with a different end state. If you don't take the time to take a step back and think about what is the goal and what are we trying to accomplish with education, you're going to end up with the system that, if we're honest, nobody really likes. And I think that in, in many ways that that is the future that's being described where Success Academy replaces a sort of government provided school system. I think we're going to end up with a system that the vast majority of people don't like. Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe I'll cut all of that from the podcast. <laughs> sort of rambling on there for a minute. Yeah. These are tough questions. And I think this also comes back to the underlying tension of being a radical bureaucrat because as a bureaucrat, you have systems that you are responsible for running as competently as possible. Right. And 
as a, and, and part of being a good bureaucrat is being a public servant. And that means there's taxpayers on the other end of what you're doing. It may be a few layers removed, but you've got to serve them today. You've got to make sure they're getting their services today and tomorrow. And so the efficiency argument um, or the you may or may not get third grade or eighth grade again, it's real. Like, and it does matter if you're literate by the time you're in third grade. Yeah. But at the same time, what we're arguing for is we have to do both. We have mm-hmm. to step back. We have to think about shifting systems. And what we're questioning here is whether these systems are being shifted in, in the right way when they do get shifted. Yeah, so then I think what's happening here is that perhaps Moskowitz, perhaps Elizabeth Green, or perhaps others are creating a kind of a false dichotomy that you can either be radical or you can be a bureaucrat, that it's impossible right. to be both. Right. You can either run the system as it is and try to figure out how to improve it or you can throw it all away and start over. It's a zero sum game. It's a zero sum game. And I think that there's probably a lot more intersection in that Venn diagram. I think we need, you know, both things to exist to sort of figure out a, a solution. So she has a quote where she talks about the lottery. On the one hand, a district can allow one of its schools to expel a student, but it still bears responsibility for making sure he is educated somewhere else. Similarly, a district has to educate every child in its purview, whether she started in kindergarten or arrived yesterday from Jamaica, which is an interesting choice of student, uh, no matter how far behind she may be academically. Many charter schools, by contrast, admit students only only during the once-a-year lottery and sometimes only in certain grades. So that's one side. But while critics see the lottery approach as an abdication of responsibility, Moskowitz and Osborne champion it as a tool for social justice. Neighborhood schools, they argue, institutionalize housing segregation, making a child's zip code his educational destiny. Charter schools, by contrast, hand the power of the choice to the parents who can't afford to exercise it through real estate. And it's just, you know, it's like, wait, what? Like, I thought we were talking about how charter schools don't take every student. And then it doesn't even respond to that argument, you uh-huh. know, you know, and, and it just jumps to we're empowering parents with choice, which, by the way, we have a lot of choice in the public school system, too. That was a, a, a moment of false equivalence that I saw in the article, and I just wanted to throw it out there. So to be clear, the false equivalence is what? OK, so when you're talking about school choice, she says there's polarized interpretations. Uh-huh. So on the one hand, the, the people who would argue against charters and the lottery system would say, well, district schools have to take everybody. Right. And on the other hand, charter schools say, but we are empowering parents with this tool for social justice. Right. And it's like, OK, that is a response. However, but we're not talking about the same thing right now. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think this is sort of an interesting example. First of all, I, I just have to pause there and say that, like. There is some like serious racial undertone in this particular passage, right? right? Like you can sort of envision as she's talking about whether a student arrived yesterday from Jamaica or not, no matter how far behind she may be, like it's a very clear racially charged choice that was made. And I don't know if that uh, the, that choice is unconscious mm-hmm. and it's just sort of natural um, or if that choice was on purpose. 
And, you know, the author here is trying to sort of point to injustice faced by sort of typical categories of children. But either way, I, I felt like this sort of set off some some alarms and, and I felt like, you know, it would be it would be wrong in some ways not to sort of be explicit about that. I, I, think- I did. I agree. Let me play devil's advocate again for a second here. So if I'm green, I might say, but that's a real example. It's, and it's just an example. Schools in New York City take kids from Jamaica all the time. Meaning that's a real example of a real student, you know? Well, it's a real example of something that happens. Because uh, from what I understand, students that come from Jamaica actually perform pretty well mm. on our on our standards, okay. better than a student of the same racial background right. that grew up in this city. So the assumption is that the student from Jamaica is far behind academically. Why? Right. Because they're black? Right. Like... The assumption is that because a student and, is black, and by the they're way, going to perform worse. And and when you read the example, your assumption is that the Jamaican student is black, like not right. a Chinese Jamaican, not an Indian Jamaican, not a white Jamaican. Right. But, yeah. So, so, so that there's there's I think think some stuff to unpack and work through there. I, I'd be very mm-hmm. curious to, I don't know, attend a Q and A with the author and like put, throw that question out there. Besides that sort of racial undertone, which which you know, I kind of feel like is there on purpose because we're talking about what is really an argument that is happening right now in New York City. This argument about how d- diverse or not diverse our schools are, mm-hmm. how s- segregated our school system is, and how 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 these schools, like charter schools, are actually making this worse. They're they're consolidating uh, Black and Latino students. I, I would sort of I would sort of point out that yeah, a lot of the charter schools. Um, because the opportunity for them, the beachhead for them to establish was in poor neighborhoods that were overwhelmingly black and Latino in most cities in the United States, in New York, in, in the Bay Area, in California, in the South. The opportunity to begin with was these schools that were perceived as tragically underperforming and exacerbating a history of disadvantage for black and Latino people. Yeah, I think there's a lot going on here. There's a lot going on in this paragraph. And I think that, yeah, I, I think what the article for me does more than anything else is it sort of feels like conciliation. Like, well, none of us really likes it, but this seems to be the best thing going. Maybe we should support it. That was sort of my net takeaway from this article was that it really didn't give me the illumination of the issues as much as it sort of twisted itself in knots to sort of congratulate Eva Moskowitz on her success and on her book deal. Yeah. I don't know if I answered your question or not. I can't remember what the question was. Me neither. <laughs> I have a habit of going on for a while, eh? Um, well, I think we're getting ready to wrap up here. If you like what you're hearing on our podcast and you think these are questions that your friends or colleagues might be wrestling with, help them out. Yeah, and help us out too. <laughs> yeah, spread the word. We really want people who grapple with the same questions we discuss on the show to engage with us. That's right. You can follow us on Twitter. We are at Rad Bureau. That's R-A-D-B-U-R-E-A-U. Or email us at info at radicalbureaucrat.com. Yeah, and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a world of difference. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. So let's end like good radicals. Uh, Abram, what is one thing that you learned today that you can use to create a more just and equitable world? <sighs> I think I, I don't know if I learned it, but I think the one 
takeaway from this is one that I've thought about a lot this year, which is that democracy is extremely hard. Uh, there's this great uh, quote in uh, an episode of The West Wing mm -hmm. where the uh, press secretary says that America is a difficult idea, that we're always trying to sort of reconcile all mm -hmm. of these different people mm -hmm. into this one nation. And that's really hard. And I don't think that there's a shortcut to that. I think that we have to dig in and do the hard work of building the nation that we want and not give in to a voice that tells us that there is a more efficient way to get there. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, and for myself, I, I think that uh, aside from everything I learned about making a podcast, <laughs> I won't get into that. I think just to echo your point, I think some of the conversation that we had around efficiency and a private citizen versus a public citizen or, or, or government citizen, government worker. <laughs> uh, I think these are really, like you said, they're very tough questions, but they are questions that we need to constantly be interrogating and can't forget about. Even when we think, when we assume that the immediate priority is X, Y, and Z, getting a kid to read by third grade or whatever else it is. When we get too focused on, on one of these other questions, we lose really the fundamental idea and hope behind like this democratic experiment. So let's also end by being good bureaucrats. The views expressed here are our personal opinions only and do not reflect the official or unofficial position of any government agency, policy party, leader, or really anyone besides the two of us. And maybe you, if you agree, but maybe not. This content has not been sponsored or approved by anyone and was mostly just made because we wanted an opportunity to talk about things that matter to everyone, whether they realize it or not. Thanks for listening. Thank you.